Hello and welcome to Filter Watch, Small Media's monthly podcast on Iranian internet policy. I'm Kyle Bowen. On today's show, we'll discuss Iran's national internet and how it fits into the government's broader aims to encourage Iranian users to adopt domestic platforms. I'll be joined via Skype by Director of the California International Law Center at UC Davis, Anupam Chander, to get his take on this issue. But first, headlines. Iran's hardliners launched Movsedin, meaning the corrupt in Farsi, a website to identify users who violate the law on Instagram. According to Movsedin, they have collected the names of 5,000 accounts, shared their details on their website, and passed them on to the police and intelligence services. In recent years, Iran's cyber army has targeted the accounts of journalists, models, and photographers. American judicial authorities have released the names of seven Iranians allegedly involved in cyber attacks against 50 U.S. financial organizations as well as the Bowman Avenue Dam in New York. The FBI has also released their names and pictures and placed them on a wanted list. In response, Hossein Jaberi Ansari, the spokesman of Iran's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, denied any involvement and said Iran has been a victim of major cyber attacks. And that's it for news. Up next, we'll take a look at data localization and net neutrality in Iran. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by Anupam Chander. He's the Director of International Law Center and Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis. Professor Chander, welcome to FilterWatch. Thank you for having me, Kyle. So, in one of your recent papers on data nationalism, you... um, said that censorship plus data localization equals total control. And from the Iranian perspective, I think that's kind of interesting because the the sort of censorship argument has been well made with, you know, Facebook and Twitter, but also there's been a trend towards data localization, which includes the government encouraging users to adopt domestic platforms, as well as recently a member of the filtering committee demanded that the Telegram app move its servers into Iran. So I was wondering if you could expand on this sort of formula and, and talk about how it might apply in the Iranian context. So I like to talk about two generations of what I call internet border controls. So the first generation we're familiar with, um, it's, um, it's when you try to prevent information from coming into a country. So think of this as kind of the great firewall of China, uh, trying to prevent information that you don't want from the outside filtering into this country. Uh, and so, so that's our, uh, traditional issues like censorship. Now, we are seeing more recently a kind of second generation of internet border controls, and those are efforts to block information from leaving a country. And there might be a number of reasons for that. One, you might want to block information from leaving a country because you you are worried about what happens to that information when it travels abroad. Think of Europe with vis-a-vis the United States when it's um, worried about sending data to the United States. so, so there might be legitimate concerns about sending it data abroad. But a second kind of more sinister reason to keep data at home is that it enables you more effectively to uh, surveil and control that information. By requiring servers to be located in the country, then you can actually shut those servers down at will, uh, and you can more easily identify who is uh, provi- saying something online, and thereby root out who is the dissident in your country. 
So the combination then of the first generation of controls, uh, kind of preventing stuff from coming in, uh, preventing bad ideas, foreign ideas from coming in, and second, the control that makes is uh, is possible uh, when you uh, when you force people to only use local services, where you, whereby you can identify uh, wrongdoers from from the government's perspective more easily. Um, that leads to this kind of uh, more dramatic totalitarian possibility of uh, increased control over over your local population. So I think that Iran probably to some degree falls into the latter category of, of that um, of what you just sort of broke down. Do you think Iran is unique or do you see other countries doing this type of thing of, of trying to bring data inside the country for purposes of surveillance and control? Well, Russia is probably the leading example today um, and so and Vietnam before it. Um, so both have rules now of data localization that is requiring uh, local data to stay largely at home. Um, and Russia's, um, in some cases, people have said this is because of, you know, fears about Edward Snowden type uh, of mass surveillance by the United States. But in the Russian case, it's more, and even in the Vietnamese case, it's more explicitly just about making sure that there's local authorities and local kind of control over local wrongdoers. Uh, and so I think uh, Russia and Vietnam have kind of led in this, uh, in this vein. China, less so. Um, its data localization obligations seem to be kind of not as uh, clearly law, but rather more like guidelines in off. off uh, so you would expect China to be uh, at the forefront of this. Of course, China has done this with respect by banning some foreign services. So, you know, think Twitter and Facebook, for example, and many Google services, uh, for example, right? Uh, so China has done this to some extent. So all these kind of, you know, traditionally authoritarian states are engaging in this, I think, at an increasing pace. Okay, and, and to sort of switch gears now, I wanted to ask you also about the issue of net neutrality. So we looked at some uh, examples of what could be termed net neutrality violations in Iran. There was one example of Rytel, a mobile provider, offering free bandwidth if users used Opera, which is like an Iranian version of YouTube. Um, and then, of course, there's the other examples of the government providing faster access to the websites on the national internet, which is, of course, more limited and much easier to control. Um, we did a survey of Iranian internet users, and we found very little familiarity with the concept of net neutrality. I was wondering if you have any idea of why that might be, and, and more generally, do you think net neutrality is a useful prism uh, through which to criticize Iranian internet policy, or do you think it doesn't really apply? So it's a great question. Uh, I think there's an easy explanation for why net neutrality has not been at the forefront of thinking among uh, internet activists uh, in the developing world, because it seems still a kind of remote concept. It was developed in the United States. I, you know, it is uh, kind of well known among internet activists in the United States. And you saw recently kind of uh, these net neutrality issues, especially kind of coming to the fore in India and Brazil. So, and, the, and there have been tricky questions on both sides about exactly the kind of the fine details in this zero rating uh, landscape. So it's certainly plausible uh, that this becomes a very serious rights issue because essentially if the Iranian government can somehow engineer a fast internet that it controls and a slow internet that it doesn't control, that of course is uh, ideal for the kind of promote people using the controlled internet. Uh, that's a kind of softer way, force, it's a kind of nudging way of, of uh, getting people to choose 
uh, the permitted uh, monitored services as opposed to the foreign less well monitored services. So I think that is exactly, uh, it should be something that uh, kind of on the, uh, very much in the landscape. I worry sometimes when net neutrality becomes the sole focus of internet activism. Uh, I think there's issues like data localization that, you know, can be clearly, could be cast as a net neutrality issue, which sometimes uh, are omitted by uh, internet activists as a, I think it's important to keep net neutrality in uh, principles in mind, uh, but it's also important not to make them the exclusive uh, sum of one's uh, internet rights concerns. Okay, and then uh, the final question I wanted to ask you is, um, where do you see the future of tech policy in Iran post-sanctions? Um, for example, are we going to see an influx of Western companies moving in? And then if you could just set that in the broader global context, context of a few sort of trends to look out for in internet policy going forward. I don't want to make any predictions about the Iranian internet. It's hard, you know, me as a real outsider to, I've never been in Iran. Um, I don't make any claims to any predictions about the Iranian internet. Uh, I am a believer in trade as a kind of facilitator of uh, exchange, uh, cultural and informational. Uh, so, uh, so my my hope is that increased ex- uh, trade will will increase the flow of information. I would like to be optimistic, and I, I guess that would be the way I would uh, approach this. Um, but uh, but it's hard for me to, to guess. Uh, uh, but I think o- overall, what you're seeing is this kind of contest between two different uh, visions of the internet. Uh, one is as an uh, as a source of information that uh, liberates people, uh, where people around the world share information, learn, organize. Uh, you know, you know, share information often anonymously so that they can avoid the, the uh, government authorities and thereby kind of uh, not only sharing information about their experiences, but also learning about that others share the similar experiences and validate their own concerns. Uh, so I think that's the that one positive vision of the Internet. And then there's the vision of the Internet being used increasingly by government to monitor activities uh, of uh, uh, the opposition, to root out the opposition. And so this is a concern uh, across the world. I think it's the concern not only of, uh, of countries that have shown a hostility uh, to uh, any kind of dissident, uh, but also countries even like the United States that have, you know, shown at times, uh, think of Herbert Hoover's uh, uh, FBI um, being used to spy on and and uh, and uh, uh, kind of uh, impugn uh, the civil liberties uh, civil rights activists of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, so so and and before as well. So I think uh, this is a concern generally. So this contest between uh, a, a liberalizing and liberating internet versus an internet that that uh, chains us and that makes the governments more powerful. That kind of uh, censorship, but plus data localization, equaling total control formula that you uh, cited earlier. So I think those are the things that we have to watch out for. We all obviously have to fight for the liberating uh, free expression as internet activists and and scholars. I think we have to argue for the internet as a liberating tool, not one that will uh, increase our fetters. Okay, so it looks like we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, On that note, I want to say thanks so much, Professor Chandra. Thank you, Kyle. In our last segment, we'll look at a few interesting statements from Iranian politicians and ICT policymakers.
Experiency Council Secretary Mohsen Rezaei claimed that Iran's enemies, meaning reformists, could not win elections in small cities and towns because they lack good communications infrastructure. He added that the enemy managed to win in cities like Tehran as a direct result of good communications infrastructure. In other words, the internet helped reformists in the recent parliamentary elections. Commenting on the recent detention of eight models and photographers over Instagram pictures, judicial spokesman Golam Hossein Mohseni Ajay noted that anyone who breaks Iranian law on social networks and cyberspace will be identified and arrested by the police and intelligence services. Hojat al-Islam Sayed Mehdi Kamushi, head of the Islamic Development Organization, said that using the internet is usually a waste of time, suggesting that Iran should remove harmful information and time-consuming content from the web. According to Kamushi, people used to read the Quran before bedtime, but now they can't go to sleep until they check their social networking apps. Ali Reza Azadarash, head of the Cybercrime Prevention Department at Iran's Cyber Police, warned individuals who promote hacking education and training on social networks that they could face fines and prison sentences. According to Azadarash, there are many advertisements for hacking tools on Telegram. And that does it for this episode of FilterWatch. You can download previous episodes as well as today's show on iTunes or SoundCloud. Remember to visit us online at smallmedia.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at small underscore media. Thanks for listening.